This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Next47, the global venture firm backed by Siemens. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On March 27th, the Washington Post traveled to America's tech epicenter, the Bay Area, for the first time to convene the next installment of the Technology 202, a series of conversations about the changing regulatory climate and the relationship between innovation and public policy. What would a federal privacy framework look like and should it preempt state laws? In this segment, experts will discuss the merits behind calls for increased oversight of tech companies and explore potential regulatory solutions. Let's listen. Well, hi everyone, I'm Kat Zakreski and I'm the anchor of the Technology 202 newsletter here at the Washington Post. And we've got a great panel here today. I almost feel like as a tech policy reporter, it's my Twitter feed coming to life. We've got <laughs> Ashkan Soltani, he's the former chief technology officer at the FTC. And we have Alex Stamos, who's the former chief security officer at Facebook um, and is now a professor at Stanford. So thank you both for joining us today. And so as we just saw in this video, the conversation about privacy legislation isn't just happening here in California, it's happening at the federal level as well. And I wanna talk to you a little bit about right now as there's increasing conversation in DC about how to regulate the tech companies and we see interest surging across the political spectrum. Do you think Washington lawmakers are getting smarter about technology issues? Let Ashkin take that first. Sure. So, so I think um, they're definitely more aware of the issues. And some of the, the members have technology fellows now. So there's a program called Tech Congress where they're bringing technologists into Congress to help policymakers figure out policy. And in fact, my knowledge of a couple of the draft bills that are floating around were primarily kind of um, inspired or, or uh, shepherded by the technologists in these offices. So they are at least getting some of these resources, to at least some of the members. And that's in Congress, but also the Federal Trade Commission obviously plays a major role in regulating these companies. Are you seeing that level of tech knowledge increase at all in the FTC? I mean, so I was the, the fourth chief technologist. I was the first one of the first technologists, and then later came back as chief technologist. And in my uh, time there, I helped set up this Office of Technology Research. And so the idea was to build that culture of technologists in-house to not help just on enforcement, on, but on policymaking, on research, on competition issues. Um, since I've left, there hasn't been another chief technologist appointed. There was an interim technologist, but the current um, chair has not uh, hired a chief technologist. And the Office of Technology Research has sadly um, somewhat, uh, it's down to like four people now. Um, and I think it's based on the priorities of the agency, but it is starting to diminish. Now, that said, I testified last year to Congress, and a number of the lawmakers seem to be interested in potentially this concept of a Bureau of, uh, Bureau of Technology. So the, the agency has a Bureau of Consumer Protection, Bureau of Com Competition, Bureau of Economics, and the e economists advise the agency on both the competition and consumer protection side. And so the question is, do you need a Bureau of Technology that helps advise the, the agency on its policymaking and enforcement as well? And how is that impacting some of the investigations that are going on right now, particularly into Facebook? I mean, does the FTC have the resources it needs right now to take that company on? I mean, I suspect, um, so there, there, there is a, staff, a great staff technologist inside the agency, and when it comes to these matters, they hire outside experts when it comes to uh, litigation as well as um, investigations and forensics. Um, that said, you know, uh, I, I think they're probably the best agency to um, to make these laws. That said, any, I think as a technologist, I'm biased. I think they could probably stand to use uh, use a chief technologist in this during this critical time. 
And Alex, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how the attitude in Silicon Valley has shifted toward Washington, particularly since this turning point that we saw in the 2016 election. How do you think the relationship has shifted on Silicon Valley's end? So I think folks in the Valley have both taken their responsibility towards general society more seriously, while they've also started to engage both more and less positively with Washington. I, I think there's a lot of ignoring of regulation, you know, kind of a standard uh, cybersecurity, something new. There's no interesting regulation going on. These, these old folks can't, can't figure it out. Um, kind of attitude that kept the companies from, from engaging in a positive manner. And I think they're finally starting to realize that if you say no, no, no to everything, if you oppose any kind of regulation, that, that just builds up a huge amount of pressure. And then when the dam breaks, eventually you might have something that's, that, that's overreaching or not actually helpful. Um, so I think there's been a little bit of that. What I'd like to see is then actual proposals, right? What we haven't seen out of the companies yet is them speaking with one voice on this is the kind of thing that we think would be both solve these specific problems and then also would not put the United States at a disadvantage, um, which for the most part, you know, their natural thing is to say no. And I think it's a, a big change for their DC teams to, to get into saying yes, but. And on that point, what's the likelihood that these companies that do compete very fiercely with each other in a lot of ways, what's the likelihood that they could come together and, and have a unified voice in Washington? Uh, I mean, there are these trade associations. I, I think what I would rather to see the companies really focus on is working together on the actually solving the problems, right? And this is something we've seen from other industries. You know, the finance industry has come together on self-regulatory. You know, they have FINRA is a self-regulatory framework. They've come together to say these are the kinds of regulation. You know, Morgan Stanley, people at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs hate each other, right? It's not like they're, they're, they're best friends. But they understand that they're, all their boats rise and sink at the same time. Instead, in the Valley, you still have a lot of kind of personality-driven conflict between these companies. And so I think as long as you've got, you know, CEOs at certain companies sniping at others in keynotes um, and some of that kind of interpersonal stuff, it's unlikely for them to, to work well together, which is really unfortunate, right? Because I, I do think a lot of these issues, one of the, the biggest problems here is that unlike, say, the finance industry, the supranational context of these decisions is incredibly important, right? So like 90% of Facebook's users are not American. And so when you make these decisions, you have to do so in a way that is reflective of all these different legal regimes and all these different cultures. Uh, and so if the companies work together on, this is how we're gonna mod you know, work together on content moderation, this is how we're going to self-regulate on political ads, I think they'll be in much better shape than trying to wait for 87 different laws in 87 different jurisdictions, many of which will probably not actually be that respectful of human rights and would end up putting the companies in a very difficult place if they ended up following all those local laws. And so I wanted to ask a little bit, we just heard about what's happening with privacy legislation here in California, and how do you think that that is impacting the debate at the federal level? Do you think we'll see Congress pass federal privacy legislation this year? So um, my, my sense is probably not this year. We've heard um, a number of uh, California delegates have sent letters to, to urge Congress not to preempt California. And we've heard a lot of the policymakers, um, many of whom are actually uh, from California, say that they would not pass a law that's weaker than the California law, right? And so there's, I, I think, getting to uh, a law uh, that would, would fit that criteria in the next year, I don't think is that likely, maybe in the next two years, but who knows? There's a lot of, this is the, as Alex kind of hinted at, 
uh, the companies are finally at the table urging Congress to preempt uh, the states because there's finally a state law, right? They wouldn't be at the table if they didn't think they could get a better deal. And I think Congress is aware of that in saying that we won't um, preempt the California law with a weaker law at least. And so my sense is 20% tops this year. How about you, Alex? What do you think the chances are? I'm not going to make a prediction. I, I, I think, though, the companies are going to back a federal law because they've seen what a mess GDPR is, right? So the, the European law is, in theory, one law, but it's has all these incredibly broad terms that nobody knows what they mean, and those are being interpreted by 28 different data protection authorities, maybe 27 in a month, but right now 28 uh, European states, and then they're gonna have lawsuits in 28 different localities. And so nobody knows what any, what GDPR means right now. And the companies do not want to end up in a situation where you have 50 state laws interpreted by 50 state AGs, some of which might have some significant political, you know, uh, we had a state AG up here who was talking, I think, reasonably about regulation. There are state AGs who are threatening the tech companies because they don't like the fact that they are moderating hate speech. Right, like that's a threat that has come out of a number of conservative state AGs. I think we got to be really careful about who we empower if we're going to have 50 different states having some kind of lever to get what they want out of the companies. It's probably better to have one federal standard and one competent federal regulator um, and to make the United States truly a, a, a single market, whereas Europe has decided that they're going to be 28 different digital markets, which is, I think, in the long run, probably actually good for Facebook and Google because Facebook and Google can afford lawyers in 28 different state, uh, international capitals. Whereas small European companies, it's going to be much more difficult for them to compete against the big incumbents uh, when they have that much kind of uh, uncertainty and, and legal overhead. And on that point, do you think that it would be beneficial to have states be able to pass their own privacy laws? Because a lot of privacy advocates make the point that that could be a way to test different regulations and see what works best. So what, what's your I mean, thoughts having, on that? Having helped write the California law, I'm, I'm a fan of that model, only because... Um, uh, one of the things to think about is the California law is a privacy law focused primarily on one thing, which is the sharing and sale of data with third third parties that you don't have a relationship with. So that's one version of privacy, which is that I have an interaction with you know the New York Times or the Washington Post, and then there's third parties that can collect that data on that on that website. And I'm, and the California law gives consumers the ability to say no to the sell, selling and sharing of their information to those third parties. Um, other people think when they say when they when you talk about privacy, other people think about facial recognition by the first party, mobile uh, mobile location tracking or geolocation, um, AI and bias. Like all of these things generally fall under this term privacy. And so I think to get one omnibus law that addresses all these complex issues, which will have different levers, will be difficult. And I think that's why having a state law or a state model, right? So Washington just passed a law that was more of a focus on facial recognition, and Illinois, uh, Illinois has a as a law. Um, focus on facial recognition as well. We have a Data Broker Act in Vermont and California just uh, passed or, or proposed a similar legislation where data brokers have to register in the state. So this way you get to handle all the different things that people put under the privacy umbrella, I think, without trying to solve it with one omnibus law. My sense is if you get a federal law, you're just going to get back to a notice and choice regime, which is you, consumer, have to decide whether the collection of this information is appropriate, and if you don't think so, you can't use the service. And I don't think that gets us anywhere with, with regards to privacy. So I think the, the experimentation model is uh, um, initially important, and then maybe ultimately will land in a federal um, uh, comprehensive law that works well. And I wanted to move on and make sure we got a chance to talk about Cambridge Analytica because it's now been more than a year since the public first learned about that incident. And uh, you know, we've heard that the FTC is conducting an investigation. 
Why do you think that that investigation is is taking a year? What what's that process look like inside the agency as someone who's worked there? Sure. I mean, so I can't speak to specifics uh, of that case, but in general, cases take. Uh, so I worked on the Facebook case in 2011. That case took about two years, right? And so, on average, cases take you know uh, at least over a year, uh, at least you, on average two years for the privacy cases. Additionally, um, for better or worse, depending on your perspective as a, as an law enforcement. Um, there's been repeated additional violations that fall under the consent decree, right? So there's been multiple data breaches, multiple sharing of data, multiple um, additional issues. And each time that happens, the agency has to go back and seek more information and, and, and interact with the company to, to get the facts to understand whether that was a violation or not. And then ultimately, this is probably the most political um, uh, kind of case that will come out of the agency. So uh, outside of the actual merits, the decision on what the fines should be, what injunctions are available, and what the settlement is, is going is incredibly political, not just from the um, kind of from the state side, but all of Europe and kind of all of the world is looking to see what the home regulator, the home turf regulator, um, what actions they bring against Facebook. And I think Facebook's actually quite knowledgeable about this. They, I think everyone wants a settlement so that, uh, that this... Cambridge Analytica issue can go away and Facebook can say, you know, we're pro-privacy now, we've done our penance and we're going to move forward. And I wanted to ask you, there's been some reporting, particularly from my colleague Tony Rahm, who's just here, that the FTC is considering a multi-billion dollar fine mm. against Facebook. What does that mean for one of the most valuable companies in the world? Does that have a significant impact or is it kind of just a slap on the wrist. I think they, they're, uh, they net 40 billion a year if, uh, last year. I think it's over 50 now. Uh, it's over 50 billion. So, um, so you know, the, the largest numbers we've heard was 5 billion, um, which I think was unlikely. You know, again, I, I, I would bet to, to be much lower than that. Um, uh, there's a point at which I think it makes sense for Facebook to accept the fines and kind of move on. There's a point at which it just makes more sense to litigate, and they can ultimately reject the fine and take the FTC to court um, if the number is too large. Um, the other thing to think about is outside of fines, though, the FTC has the uh, ability to injunct, uh, injunct, uh, bring injunctions against certain practices. And so I think that might be an area that um, we might look to as what is the long-term um, kind of uh, benefit of the settlement and what, what the agency can do to um, bring the company under order in terms of protecting consumers' privacy. So I wouldn't look at just the fines. I would look at what, um, what injunctions they, they recommend as well. And Alex, you obviously were working at the company for many years. Has the FTC interviewed you in their investigation into Facebook? Uh, they have not. But if they had, I don't think I'd be talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> had to ask. <laughs> and so as this um, investigation is going on, you have deep insights into how Facebook operates as a company and how Mark Zuckerberg thinks. I mean, how much do you think this has influenced the company's recent announcement that they're going to make a pivot toward privacy and encryption? Yeah, I think there are two things. Well, there's two or three things that have influenced that. First, Mark Zuckerberg is sitting on more data about what people want to do online than anybody else in the world, right? Um, and that's why he keeps on making these decisions like to buy Instagram for a billion dollars uh, or WhatsApp for about 20 that people think are insane and then they turn out to be prophetic. And it's because he knows what direction the world is going. And so, one, I expect that entire direction of getting rid of public, you know, of most of the public profiles, reducing the size of groups people are speaking to, that a lot of that is just gonna be based upon data about what consumers want now and which way is the world moving. Um, second, I think it's being driven, yes, by privacy and the fact that uh, 
both consumers and governments are asking for privacy. But then it's also driven by the fact that Facebook has this problem of trying to take a middle ground on a bunch of very difficult trade-offs, and that isn't working, right? So the, the metaphor I've been using is there's a bunch of trade-offs that are like knobs on a guitar amp. And one of the fundamental trade-offs there is between privacy and safety, that to find bad guys who do bad things and to stop them from doing so, including, say, Russians who are trying to influence an election, you have to know a lot about those people. And so if this guitar knob goes from zero to 11, and you know, Facebook's been bouncing between three and seven on a bunch of them. And what Zuck has decided to do is he's just gonna slam it all the way over to the privacy side, knowing less, but also then having less control. Because right now, what happens is you get criticized from both sides. Facebook knows too much, but they don't know enough about the bad guys. Facebook is a monopoly, but they don't control people's speech enough. And he's saying, okay, we're gonna know much less about people. We're gonna make money not via knowing about people and selling them ads via other mechanisms, which he hasn't defined yet, and that'll be interesting to see what those are. And we're going to make people responsible for what they say and what they consume, because no longer will Facebook be able to decide what people see, won't be able to see if small groups of people are anti-vaxxers, or if they're talking about things that the Washington Post does not want them to talk about. Um, and the Washington Post won't see that either. And so he's, you know, He's basically flipped the table of saying like we can't we can no longer try to rearrange little bits the only way through this crisis, which is both a privacy trust crisis but also a people wanting us to control the speech of others. The only way to do that in a global context is to disclaim responsibility for everything and, and that's that's what he's doing and, and basically it's he's kind of calling the bluff right everybody's saying we want privacy he's like great i'm going to give you privacy and the scary side here is What's going on is that a lot of the safety stuff that Facebook has done is not legally required. Facebook, we were not required to go look for Russian ads in 2016. Like our team took that on because we cared about it. And we found that stuff and then turned it over and disclosed it without any legal requirement to do so. Um, but the privacy stuff is legally required. And so he's reacting to the fact that laws are only getting passed on one side, which is on the privacy side. Um, and so all of the other stuff is kind of optional and is going to go away. And I think that doesn't mean that things are necessarily gonna get significantly worse in all these areas, but they're, depending on the exact fine decisions that are made, it's definitely a possibility that some of these areas where Facebook has been able to get a grasp will no longer be under the control of the company. And what does that mean for the conversation in Europe right now where several countries are considering fining Facebook for harmful content on their platform? Right, so, um, so you, the move, the current move was to encrypt communication between users, so basically mimic what WhatsApp provides on the Messenger and Instagram platform. And so that still won't affect newsfeed as of yet, right? We don't, we don't know any signals to say that they're going to encrypt newsfeed or make it basically a, a kind of a multicast kind of system that's between kind of individuals. But um, with regards to censoring speech between, for example, um, like, uh, you know, uh, groups to individuals, um, Facebook has essentially tied their hands, as Alex described, and, say, and said, um, we cannot see into those conversations and therefore we cannot be accountable for those conversations. And I think that's, a, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? I'm a huge fan of end-to-end -end encryption and privacy, but if you look at, for example, some people argue that in Brazil, the combination of zero rating, which is free, free um, data service, and, and encryption on WhatsApp is essentially why you have um, s such a high spread of uh, fake information on, on, in Brazil. But which is the trade-off that lots of people in the media don't accept. Right. They want both. They want perfect privacy and they want Facebook to be completely responsible for people's speech. Can't have both of those things. And so he's making the decision very stark. He's tried to, to balance it and he's just gonna say, okay, we're gonna give people a huge amount of privacy, but now they are responsible for themselves. 
Do you think he's making the right decision by doing that? I, I think there, I would like to see the next, there's, there's at least 18 months of work to happen for this. And I would like to see those 18 months. I don't want to see in 18 months that Facebook just comes out with like, here you go, we went into a room and we, we figured this all out. Um, there are a lot of very specific decisions need to be made, and I think those need to be made in a public way with a, an open public discussion about how these trade-offs, and then to talk about kind of the technical details, because there's a lot of devil in the details, I think is probably the only way, honestly, that you can run a multi-billion person network in all of these legal jurisdictions is going to be to give people privacy and to not be responsible for their speech. Because going down the road, there's no end to people wanting to control other people's speech, right? There's, there's no end to that. And so Facebook has, to this point, telegraphed if we get enough criticism, we will change our policies. And that is a trap that there's no way out of except to completely change the model. So and I think it, it honestly is probably his only choice. And there, there, there are subtle changes, right? So WhatsApp, for example, limited the number of people you could forward uh, yeah, a yes. news. And so there's UI changes and other areas where you can s reduce the spread or the speed and velocity of the spread of disinformation yeah. while still providing privacy. So it's not like a, you know, there are still tweaks you can make. There are tweaks, but that's why I think that needs to be an open process. There's a little bunch of stuff you can push into the client as, as phones get smarter, um, especially in the ways, you know, one of the problems with end-to-end encryption is it does open up the ability to harass people or, or you know, to treat, to, to do, to exploit children in a pretty horrible way. That's the kind of stuff that can be moved off the server and then pushed into the client. But there needs to be a discussion about that and then probably a bunch of public research and testing to make sure it's effective. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for this session. Went far too fast, but um, thank you both for being here today. Thank and you. I'd like to welcome the next segment to the stage. Thanks, Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com. <laughs>